Thank you. Boy, let's hear it for the uh, orchestra and choir. That's great. And if you wonder why we're doing so well as a church, I mean, that's tremendous. Over 250 people have gone to Love Europe. Uh, one of my sons was part of a trip as well. It's because of the leadership uh, that's happening without a senior pastor. So people like David Fletcher, we've got Stephanie, we've got uh, Billy, we've got um, John. I don't want to leave people out, but let's hear it for our leadership. That's um, <clears throat> Keep praying for them. Well, uh, how do you know if you're a believer? How do you know if you're in? Uh, remember, James is writing to churches that have been dispersed, uh, dispersed into very religious settings. There was Gnostic beliefs. There were Near Eastern religions. And so James is asking the question, how do you know if a person is just a follower of Christ, or maybe they're pretending to be Christians? Uh, the New Testament church had a problem with that because they were so generous financially and hospitality-wise, people would actually fake being Christians so that they could get reap uh, financial benefit or just food, clothing, shelter kind of things. So James is going to ask an interesting question. He's going to say, as you look at each other, how do we know who are the true followers of Christ and who are the people that might just be cultural Christians or something like that? That's an interesting question. How do you know the insider from the person who's an outsider? Uh, when I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, during the summers, all of us as crew staff, we, get, we go off and work in different places all over the country, all over the world. Uh, I went to Wildwood, New Jersey, and working with college students who would get jobs during the day, and at night we'd do evangelism in New Jersey. A bunch of us wanted to continue to exercise, so there was a weightlifting place right down the street in uh, Wildwood, New Jersey, and so a bunch of us went. Now, this was no normal weightlifting place. Do not think Brea Community Center, okay? This was called Attila's Gym. It had a picture on the side of the building of a Nordic Viking with a man's severed head in his hand. So you walk in, we said to the manager, hey, we're here for two months, can we just like pay for two months and work out? He said, oh, that's fine, that's good. So I remember being there thinking, could anybody tell that I was just a guy who was like bopping in, or am I like one of the regulars, right? Now, looking at the regulars, it was unbelievable. These men were cut. Like small objects were rotating around their biceps, right? It was really annoying because they would like hit you periodically. So when you would lift, you would do whatever you're doing, curls, and when you're done, you just drop the weights. You just drop them. And you just kind of look in the mirror. And... <laughs> so I remember one day I was feeling good. I'd actually put weight on the bar. It was a good day. <laughs> so we're standing, I'm standing next to this guy, and there's mirrors everywhere. So we both finished. We both drop our weights. His made a lot more noise. We dropped the weights, and then our eyes met each other. And I just looked at him and I said, don't get discouraged. I've been at this a lot longer than you have. <laughs> he did not laugh. And to this day, whenever I weight lift, I always have a car running in the parking lot. <laughs> he knew you were only acting like an insider. You were not an insider. So James said last week, he said, in the trial, I want you to know God loves you. I want you to know that God's love for you will not increase or decrease. If you are a follower of Christ, you are securing God's love, his kindness, his compassion. But the key word for James is if. 
you're a follower of Christ. So now he's going to try to willow people out and give us a criteria by which to judge each other. In America, where we still have cultural Christians left and right, this is not a bad exercise for us to think about. So let's go to the Word of God. When James wrote this, he wasn't just thinking of the 12 tribes that were dispersed. Via the Holy Spirit, he was thinking of us. He was thinking of our church. So please stand with me as we receive God's Word. If you can't stand, just uh, be in a reception stance and prepare your hearts to receive God's word. Father, we give the Holy Spirit permission to take these words we're about to read and apply it to our hearts, to have us think about our own lives, our own pursuit of you. Amen. James chapter 1, starting in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten the kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does." If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You may sit down. James begins with a great reminder about God. He says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God doesn't have good days, bad days. His righteousness is complete. He's always holy. He's always perfect. He's always good. He's always kind. He doesn't have good or bad days like the Greek gods did in Greek mythology. He's separating God from what you'd hear about Zeus, let's say. But don't miss what he says in the very beginning in verse 17. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above. Now James is interesting just like King David was interested in Psalm 103, when you think of the good things of God, when you create your list, what's on the list and how the list is ordered to King David is everything. Remember King David said, when I think of the benefits of God, I first think about the fact that all your iniquities have been forgiven, that the curse has been removed, that you'll be resurrected from the pit, from death, and that you've been crowned with loving kindness and goodness. And yes, God fills your days with good things. We said last week, as Americans, we flipped the list. We always tend to think that God's good things are uh, the financial health of our church, the financial health, health of our business, whether our marriages are doing good and our kids are doing well. 
David is saying that's the wrong way to look at the list. Uh, Notice what James is doing. He says, every good thing given is from the Father of lights. But what's the first good thing James mentions? This is what James mentions. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth, according to James, is the gospel. The very first thing we should praise God for every single day is he gave us the gospel. Jesus came, died a horrific death 2,000 years ago, gave you an invitation to become sons and daughters of the king. Those of you who took him up on that invitation, in fact, you are children of God, that should top the list, according to James. Every good thing is from God, and the best good thing, according to James, the gospel came at great cost to God, but the gospel came, and you inherited the gospel. But now that you've inherited the gospel, James wants to say, but how do you live your life? That's going to be a really good indicator on whether you did receive this gospel. Then he says this, this you know, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Remember last week I said probably the most misinterpreted verse of the book of James is if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Well, of course God gives wisdom. That's not what James was talking about. He was saying in the trial, if you're confused why you're in the trial, then anyone who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. This is most misinterpreted Verse of James, part two. Uh, Is it good advice to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Yeah, awesome communication advice. I doubt you could pick up a Christian book on marriage or communication, and this verse is not mentioned. It is great principle in interpersonal communication. It's just not what James is talking about, right? The book of Proverbs will get you everything we just talked about. James is not talking about that. Remember, he just said, the best gift God gave you was the word of truth, and in light of that, everybody should be quick to hear. Hear what? The word of God. We should be quick to hear the word of God. And also, don't speak back. Don't always be defensive in what you hear the word says. And anger means you're not going to receive the word of God. And by the way, there's much to be angry about when it comes to the Bible. There are many things God asks us to do that we're like, oh, I hate that. Right? I'm not, premarital sex is off the table? Are you kidding me? Um, it'd be great to cheat on my taxes. It'd be great to tell half-truths. I think enemies should be hated and abolished. And the word of God comes and says, no, no, no. When your enemy is hungry, feed him. When you're insulted, bless that person, says Peter. And we're like, well, that's just, that just ticks me off. I do not want to bless a person who insulted me. That's cr- Turn the other cheek. I, you know, Sigmund Freud rejected Christianity because he read the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you're slapped, turn the other cheek. Freud said, that is ridiculous, and you'll be walked on. In his book called Civilization and Its Discontents, Freud rejects Christianity based on the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot to hate about the Bible. So James says, be quick to listen to the word and stop resisting and don't get angry because the anger of uh, man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. Then he goes on to say this. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility. Receive the word. 
uh, implanted. Those phrases are very interesting. Receive the word says this. Uh, by receive in the Greek, we mean put yourself under the word. Allow the word to dictate your actions. The word dictates your sexuality. The word dictates our definition of marriage. The word dictates how we live our lives. The word dictates how we do everything, right? So James is saying, does the word control your life? Even in those areas you don't want it to control, you resist. Then he says, I want you to put aside all filthiness. Um, in the Greek, uh, that Greek word, put aside filthiness, uh, they mostly use that to talk about dirty clothing that you would just kind of strip off. Uh, one time, my oldest son, Michael, was a child, and he was carsick. We, we got to our house. Michael had never thrown up before. So I'm holding him, and he throws up for the very first time straight down my back, straight down it. Then it that scares him. He's never done that before. It pops right up, looks me right in the face, gives me round two. Boom. Now he feels better. His stomach feels better. He jumps down, runs into his room to play. I am literally like... And Noreen walks in, and she's like, oh, you became a parent. Yeah. You're not a parent till you've been thrown up on. I am like... So I said, Noreen, get me some scissors. She was like, why? I said, I'm cutting off the shirt. She said, Tim, we can wash it. I'm cutting off the shirt. And I did. I cut that thing, and I was like... Uh, that is what James is saying. I want you to get rid of this filthiness because it's doing damage to you. Um, but now let me, say, let me give you a counter to what I said last week. I've actually received this counter in Bible studies that I've led like with high school basketball players. I said last week that if you're a child of God, God loves you as much as he's ever going to love you, right? His love for you will never increase or decrease. I believe that's absolutely 100% true. So, one could argue, then I don't have to strip off filthiness. Because if I keep my sins, you just said God's love for me does not increase or decrease one iota. Absolutely true. But your ability to see God's love, your ability to experience God's love has been compromised. Go back to the next image uh, that we have with the t-shirt. So let's say we're going to go up to Big Bear. Big Bear is 100% beautiful. It's always that beautiful. As we're driving up, don't think that everybody experiences Big Bear the same way, right? If you're driving in a car that has crud all on the windshield, you can't see the beauty of Big Bear. It's been compromised. Now, a person next to you has a clean windshield. He or she sees Big Bear better than you do. Same is true with God's children. God loves you all Equally, And his love, 24-7, is being poured out towards you. Do not think we all experience his love the same way. Right? If you have sin, habitual sin, if, and by the way, the book of Hebrews says there's even entanglements that aren't necessarily sin. They're just not great for the Christian life. So don't think that all of us experience God's love the same way. If you are taking advantage of God's grace, you are not receiving his love as a person who's doing due diligence to get rid of the sin and clean the windshield. And by the way, Jesus says this. I want you to be radical about this sin. If your right hand offends you, I want you to cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck that thing out. He's saying, I want you to be radical about sin. So men and women, are you radical about the sin you've been convicted of? Let me, let me be bold to say this. If you have a smartphone, if you have a computer, and you do not have a filter on it, it is just a matter of time. 
Just a matter of time before Satan gets his hooks into you. And to be honest, some of you don't need a smartphone. You just don't need it. It's there purely for entertainment, and yet it's killing you because of the places you're going on that smartphone. I think Jesus would say, get rid of that smartphone. It is not worth it. That computer, it is not worth it for you not to have a filter. I have covenant eyes on my computer. There's a Biola faculty member who gets a printout at the end of every week. Every place I've gone on the computer, he gets a printout. And I get a printout of him. So men and women, Jesus is saying, get rid of it. It's killing you. But he doesn't force you to do it. He simply says this. Is my love, the experiencing of it, more purely, more enjoyable than your pornography addiction? Choose. Right now, you want that sin? Keep it. You just will not experience my love as much as you could experience it. It doesn't mean that Jesus has changed his attitude towards you, but your ability to perceive his love and receive his love has been greatly compromised. Jesus doesn't force you to make that decision. He just tells you, get rid of it. It's wearing you down and keeping you from experiencing my love. We'll take a look at that. We'll revisit that at the end of the sermon because James revisits it. I love what Wesley says. Vice does not lose its character by becoming fashionable. Yeah, people are going to look at us and call us prudes. They're going to call us Puritans. We are on the wrong end of a lot of social issues today. And people look at us. Again, the sexual revolution of the 60s is what shaped this country. So so we're going to Berkeley next week. Uh, The Center for Marriage and Relationships. Me and Dr. Chris Grace are going to Berkeley. And we're doing evangelistic talks. And we're presenting what we think is a biblical view of relationships. And I don't doubt there's going to be some Berkeley students who are going to look at us and say, What? Are you kidding me? In 2016, premarital sex is wrong. Get out of here. You guys are like backwards. Well, I'm sorry. We believe this is what leads to human flourishing. And this is what the Bible prescribes. You know what? Every once in a while, you just need to get booed by an audience full of people. It just (laughs) keeps you humble. And we'll have the car running. So then James says this, I want you to be doers of the word. Prove yourself doers of the word. Not merely hearers who delude themselves. I just spoke at a marriage conference. Friday night, Saturday, the Center for Marriage. We did a marriage conference at Biola campus. Uh, speaking to the unmarrieds, the pre-marrieds. I say this to them. Whenever I talk to people who are thinking about making a lifetime decision, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person. I'm going to do a three-legged race with this person the rest of my life. This is what I say to young singles who are thinking about it. Ladies, do not listen to one word he says. It's irrelevant. Don't listen to a word he says. Men, don't listen to one thing that woman says. It's totally irrelevant. It's only what he or she does. Ladies, you're dating a Christian man who wants to marry you. You ask him, hey, how important is the Bible? What do you expect him to say? What the man's going to say? He's going to say, oh, the the word of God. Oh, my, the powerful. (laughs) What's he supposed to say? You say to her, what about church? Oh, church, the gathering of the saints. Yes. Oh, my, yes. Prayer and fasting. Don't forget fasting. Oh, my God. What do you want them to say? The only thing that counts is what they do. That's it. Do they go to church even if you can't go to church? Do they ever talk about their Bible? Do they ever bring up something that they're reading? Do they ever do evangelism, not just talk about it? See, this is what James wants. He goes, I don't care what you say. I only care what you do. By the way, that's God. 
I want doers of the word. Show me that you want to do this, right? Um, Show me a person who's training for a marathon, and all I need to do is look at how much they do that. I once said to a friend of mine, as I was drinking a cup of coffee, he said to me, hey, wait a minute. I thought you gave up coffee. I said, I did, just not successfully, right? I mean... (laughs) So, be be doers of the word, James says. Eugene Peterson, oh, I love this quote. We are educated beyond our obedience. Peterson says, man, you don't need to read another Christian book. You need to do the ones you've already read. Ah, it's too convenient. Move on. Um, By the way, our reputation with non-Christians is we are not doers of the word. Listen to this research. A U.S. survey of adults who don't attend church, not even on holidays, these non-Christians, found that 72% of them thought that the church is full of hypocrites. So 72% of non-Christians surveyed, the church is just full of people who go there on a Sunday and their life's not one bit different after Sunday. By the way, interesting that 78% of these individuals would listen to somebody who wanted to share beliefs about Christianity. They're open to the gospel. We just don't give it to them. Barna Research Group, one of the most trusted Christian research groups, uh, surveyed 718 self-identified Christians from a variety of denominations to find out what extent their actions and attitudes line up with Jesus's. Researchers found that only one in seven Christians manages to hold Christ-like beliefs and also act in Christ-like ways. Man, I went to Biola University, one of the top Christian universities in the country. Uh, I love my students, but I guarantee you I have cultural Christians in those classes. Right? They are there because their parents said to them, you are going to be homeschooled or you're going to a Christian school and then you're going to a Christian college, so pick one. And they're there because their parents made them go. And I look at my students in some of my classes and I say, guys, you're not Christians. You're not. You're here because your parents made you be here. You go to chapel because we make you go to chapel. If we weren't here, you wouldn't do any of this. Do not delude yourselves because you go to a Christian university that you're a Christian. That's what James is saying. Don't delude yourselves that you show up at church that you're a Christian. James would say, I want to know, do you do the word? Do you submit to the word? Those are indicators to me that you actually are Christians. I think that's a good word for us today and still a United States that is still culturally Christian in a lot of different ways. So I read a book, again, one that just... Too convicting. So I just want to give it to you because it just lessens my pain. So Donald Whitney wrote a horrible book called 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. I'm just going to give you five. Here are five. Number one, do you thirst for God? Is God the most important thing? If I were to look at your day, If I were to look at how you spend your time, what you read, what you think about, how much you pray, do thirst for God. Uh, Do you have a growing concern for the spiritual and temporal needs for others? Do we share our faith? Do we know non-Christians? And if we do, what has kept us from sharing our faith with them? And by sharing our faith, I mean, I think it's great to do acts of service. I think it's great to be kind to people. But Jesus says, you need to proclaim the gospel, which means you need to sit down with people and say, do you know Jesus and what's keeping you from accepting him right now? In Campus Crusade, we use the four spiritual laws. That's pretty powerful to sit with a person and say, where are you with Jesus? Yeah, you get a pit in your stomach. I call it the Jesus pit. Do you still grieve over sin? 
Does sin bother you? Or are there just sins that you've made peace with? This is just how I am, right? I'm an angry person. I don't forgive. Yeah, it's okay to look at soft pornography. It's okay to look at certain forms of pornography. Hey, premarital sex is okay because we're going to get married. Right? Are there just sins that you no longer grieve? Are you a quick forgiver? Boy, that's powerful. C.S. Lewis said, forgiveness is a great idea until you actually have something to forgive. I love that quote. Do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? I think these are great questions to ask. So let's do that. Let's pause and ask the Holy Spirit, how am I doing uh, based on one or two of the questions we just looked at? Take Take a minute and ask the Holy Spirit to analyze your walk with God. If you're serious about this, ask your spouse to evaluate you. Ask a friend. Uh, Dwight O. Moody said, if I want to know if a man is religious, I do not ask his pastor. I ask his wife. Wow. Do you know when I got hired by Biola University? The last thing you do is you meet with the president of the university, and we sit down. I'm with Noreen, my wife. It's Dr. Cook. It wasn't Dr. Corey. It was Dr. Cook. And uh, he's, so I've been interviewed by everybody. I've got the thumbs up from everybody, but, but President Cook can ding me. If he says no, it doesn't matter what the rest of the people say. You're not being hired at Biola University. Sit down. First question of the interview. First question turns to Noreen. Noreen, how will students know that Tim loves the Lord? I want to say, can I take a quick 20-minute time, 20-second time out? Maybe we should have talked about this, Noreen. <laughs> it's like, oh, my word. It's good to ask other people, how am I doing at this? What do you see when you see me live my life? What are my priorities? I think that's powerful. Okay, what should we do? If James wants us to be a doer of the word, what is at the top of his list? Interesting to hear his list. Now, his list is not exhaustive. If President Corey got up from Biola University right now in in a Sunday morning and said, hey, Biola University is about these things. I wouldn't expect him to list everything, but it'd be very interesting from President Corey's mouth what things did he say, this is what Biola is about. James shocks us when he says, this is what I want you to do. Now, you know the first thing on his list is, if you think you're religious and you don't control your tongue, I'm telling you right now, your religion is worthless. What? First thing on his list. You can't control the tongue? 
you're not a believer. You don't have the spirit of God because the only person, James says, who can control his or her tongue is a Christian because the tongue is the most powerful part of a person's body. Now, I'm not going to address that one because next week, James actually gives that half a chapter. He goes back to it. So I'm going to wait, and I'm going to do next week about the tongue. I suspect attendance may be down. Okay. (laughs) So then he says, I may not even be here. So pure and undefiled religion. Think about that. Pure and undefiled religion. Remember, the book of James is the earliest New Testament book we have. This is James saying, having seen Jesus in action, having listened to him, I'm telling you right now, this is what he would say is pure religion in the sight of God. Wow. What would he say? Here's what he says. I want you to visit orphans and widows in their distress. That's what I want you to do. We're like, really? Top of the list. Orphans and widows. People who don't have a voice in culture. People who have no power in culture. People who have no status. They need an advocate today. And were their advocate. By the way, we know research-wise, historically, there's a wonderful book called The Rise of Christianity by sociologist Rodney Stark. He said this is why the church grew. He's talking from a sociological standpoint. He said... Women who had no advocates and children who had no advocates flooded to the church. Flooded. Numbers exploded. Think of a time with no welfare system whatsoever. And they are coming to the church. And the church is saying to women who had no value whatsoever, they're saying, listen, at the foot of the cross, you're equal with men. At the foot of the cross... Jesus loves women just as much as men. That was radical in the New Testament time. So ladies, you came to the church. And by the way, it wasn't that we just accepted you. We gave you leadership positions. You became deaconesses, which handed out the sacraments. Right? So ladies, you came and you brought kids with you and the church exploded. If James were talking to us this morning, he would say, I'm looking out. I want to know where are the orphans and widows? Where are they? Evie Free, you have money. You have power. You have status in the community. Where are the orphans and widows? Right? Not to judge us, but, but just to wrestle with what James said. So do we open the borders or close the borders? James would say, open them. You know, it could be dangerous. Well, welcome to Christianity. I'm talking to the 12 tribes that are dispersed. Persecution and danger are part of the game of being a Christian. And how we speak about women and how we treat women, James would be very interested in. Women are not second-class citizens. And in the New Testament, they got no education. They couldn't be witnesses in a court of law. And James gets up and says, the people who have nothing, they will offer this congregation nothing monetarily. Nothing. Right? But I want you to treat them. Remember, James will even say, a wealthy person walks through that door and we're all like, no way that family just walked in. Cha-ching. Awesome. They're, they got coffee. Who cares? Mealhoff, shut up. Let them have coffee. They're okay. <laughs> Cha-ching. Love it. Right? We must be doing something right. James says, how dare you? When a poor person walks in, they get the same treatment. Boy, that's radical. And the church grew. But notice how he ends it. He goes back to a a theme. He goes, I want you to keep yourself unstained by the world. 
Again, I want personal holiness. It's what Wesley says. I continue to dream and pray about a revival of holiness in our day that moves forth in mission and creates authentic community in which each person can be unleashed through the empowerment of the Spirit to fulfill God's creational intentions. In the new kingdom, there will not be poverty. In the new kingdom, everybody is equal. So we usher in the kingdom today. But what's keeping us from doing that is we have sin that is weighing us down. So I want to show you a scene from a movie. This is a powerful scene. The movie is called The Mission. It's a story about uh, Jesuits, priests. But there's one man, his name is Robert De Niro. You'll see him. He, in a fit of passion, he killed his brother. Over another woman, he killed his brother. Now he is racked with remorse. So everywhere he goes in town, he carries all of his brother's armor in a big netting to his back. And now he's trying to climb up. They're trying to get up the side of a mountain. And he's trying to do it with all of this armor on his back. And I want you to notice what a priest does and then Robert De Niro's response. So let's watch this clip. Men and women, that's us right there. Jesus has forgiven you of every sin you've ever committed. He has freed you from every sin. And yet we are walking around life with all the shame, all the guilt, and all the sin attached to us. And we're not moving very quickly. And Jesus looks at us and says, I cut you free from that. And we go back. By the way, it broke the heart of that priest for Robert De Niro to go back. It breaks Jesus' heart. When you carry around the sin he has freed you from. It doesn't change his love for you. But it changes your ability to receive his love. It changes your ability to see and experience his love. It breaks his heart to see you carrying that sin with you. You're freed. So how does James end this section? He says this. But the one who looks intently. In the Greek, that word intently, um, it's used of John. When John is looking in the tomb to see if Jesus rose from the dead, this is John looking into the tomb, looking intently at the word of liberty, the law of liberty, the gospel. And he abides by it, not becoming a uh, forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed. Men and women, we need the gospel every day. John Calvin believed every time the church opened its doors, we should have Holy Communion. Every time we come together, we have communion. Why? You need to be reminded, this is the body broken for you. This is the blood broken for you. Men and women, your sins are forgiven. The shame you're carrying is a self-inflicted wound. We need to break free of the sin that is so easily entangling us. Why? So that we can just be happier, healthier, and flourish? Or that we now can introduce the gospel to other people, that we can be free to help other people, that we can love our enemies, love our spouses, love our children, love neighbors. So men and women, this is what I want us to do this week. This week, uh, remember we looked up at God's loving kindness? This week, I want you to wake up in the morning, I want you to say, I'm a forgiven person. I am deeply loved by God. I'm deeply forgiven. I'm not going to carry this sin with me. Now, if you do sin, there's God's grace. But let's not carry the sin. And let's ask the question, do we actually do things with our Christian life? Does Christianity make a difference in how we live our lives? 
Are we different people? Are we just people who come on a Sunday and listen to great music and then walk out the doors and we act like everybody else? I pray this week that you will, in love, confidently ask the Spirit to say, hey, what's the sin I'm hanging on to that I need to deal with today? So let me pray for us. Stand with me. Father, we're humbled that the king of the universe listens to us. You receive every one of our prayers. But not just the king of the universe, our father. Abba. Father, we give you permission to remind us of two things. One, remind us of the deep love given to us via the gospel and remind us of the sin that we carry with us. We give you permission to do both. In Jesus' name, amen.